Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I'm an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Bernadette Vacuna Gonzalez, who is an associate professor of American Studies at the University of Hawaii. We will discuss her book, Securing Paradise, Tourism and Militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines, which was published by Duke University Press in 2013. Securing Paradise examines the intertwined relationship between tourism and militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines. Dr. Gonzalez questions dominant narratives of tourism as a tool of development and rather focuses on tourism as a means of both signifying and legitimizing types of security provided by military forces. By using an archive that includes literary works, travel brochures, highways, military bases, and travel tours, Dr. Gonzalez exposes how tourism thrives on feelings of nostalgia, heroism, and international brotherhood. Bernadette, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the book. Could you... It's warm outside. Oh, you are in Hawaii. <laughs> yes. Important to know. <laughs> and it's summer. It is summer. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about what brought you to study tourism and the military in Hawaii and the Philippines? Sure. Um, I think part of um, any books that 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 people in academia write, part, a lot of it is tends to be um, autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, the the introduction of the book kind of goes a little bit into that. The stories of of growing up in the Philippines because that, that's where I, I spent my childhood. Um, surrounded or sort of really kind of surrounded, not necessarily by military bases because I didn't live in that part of the country, but by sort of stories about the U.S. military. Um, this was, of course, in the 1980s, 1970s, when Cold War was um, in full swing. And so um, a lot of the good guy, bad guy stories were really part of my growing up. And the United States was always the good guy in a lot of the sort of stories that children create and consume um, and so I think that a lot of that sort of structured my um, my feelings about the military and my feelings about the United States as a sort of savior um, of the Philippines. Um, the The book didn't start off on that note necessarily. It's it it came to that when I was asked to write the introduction, and I realized. I don't know how to write an introduction. How should I do this? And so that the editors were the ones who said, well, tell the story of, you know, what do you think brought you to this book? And I realized that it did kind of go all the way to sort of these childhood feelings about the United States, you know, feelings of love, feelings of affection um, that were very much tied into the image that it, it produced about itself um, for Filipinos. Um, my original dissertation, um, um, on which this book is based, about 50% of this book is based, actually didn't have anything about the military. It had the military bases in there, but um, I don't actually necessarily um, incorporate militarism as a main analytical mm. kind of lens in it. It was mostly really about tourism. Um, so when uh, when I started to, to gut the book for, for uh, 
to get the dissertation in, uh, and think about it as a book, I realized that the, the heart of what I was talking about, what I was really most interested in, had to do with militarism. And I returned to the book, to the dissertation with that in mind. And that's how it really kind of um, became really a book about tourism and militarism both and how those two were incredibly intertwined in these particular sites that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. there, there are some things, I guess, viewing from the United States and for what most people know about the Philippines, the United States, uh, which is usually not a whole lot, uh, but there's some things in your introduction about your own experience growing up there that's quite interesting. The, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain the, the, uh, how, just how ubiquitous this figure of the G.I. Joe is in the Philippines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it's the, tied into China, which is, uh, which is like mm -hmm. one of my favorite things in the world. So, um, you know, there's always the promise of the Hershey bar and I, that was sort of haunting me as I wrote this, um, as I wrote this introduction, because there was something so incredibly, uh, there's probably a book to be written about that. Um, um, but there's something so incredibly amazing about how, you know, this, this deadly figure is, is essentially wrapped up and coded in, candy, um, in, in the way that, you know, um, children come to associate, um, pleasure and, um, and good things, um, when it comes to soldierhood and it's the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then your family also kind of continued this, uh, these feelings of admiration and gratefulness, right. When moving to the United States and kind of feeling as if they had kind of come full circle or had become part of this class of, you know, Asian Americans or Filipino Americans. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, my dad is a World War II buff, which, um, you know, he, which means he consumes a great deal of, um, material, filmic, televisual, mm. um, his historical publications on World War II. I mean, he, he just kind of, he's, that's his big, that's his big interest. Mm. And so I grew up, you know, sort of knowing that this was a kind of key moment and a key kind of identification that he had with the United States, because in, in many, um, many stories about the Philippines and, and the United States, um, World War II is the sort of main framework, right? Um, and in that way, um, World War II basically operates as a way to forget earlier wars, right? Um, when it comes to the U.S. and the Philippines um, and their relationship. Um, and I think um, I tell the story in the introduction of a little bit about um, one of the first sort of tourist things that we did as a family was to visit MacArthur's um, grave um, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And, you know, I, I still have this photograph. I mean, we're all like 80s hair <laughs> and bad shorts. Um, and, uh, you know, we're basically paying homage to, to, to this man who was such an incredible kind of figure in, in both, well, both Amer American military and Philippine history. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's sort of lionized in so many ways. Um, and it, it occurred to me in retrospect, as I was writing the introduction, that that was really the perfect scene to, to meditate a bit on, right? Um, to kind of think about how our freedom to travel, our ability to be immigrants, our, um, the gratefulness with which we should view that position is very much tied to this, this man, right? Um, and the way that we view him, the way that we view him as a liberator, and the way that we view the United States as a liberator of the Philippines. Um, and so there are all these kinds of um, discourses of gratitude and discourses of freedom and liberation that are 
incredibly tied into both um, the way that um, that tourist moment is militarized, right, um, and the way that we as immigrants were were consuming that tourist that militarized tourist touristic moment. So um, it occurred to me that you know. MacArthur is really is really sort of the grandfather of this book in many ways. Yeah, there does seem like something odd happens, I guess, when you uh, move the, the I guess the site of homage from a place like you know Virginia, and then think of homage in a place like Hawaii or the Philippines, like where these kind of colonial sites, or you know these tourist sites where you think about uh, drinking a lot and going to beaches. You know, uh, right. if you're a man, beautiful woman, right? right. If a woman, beautiful men, maybe. But and then you have these sites of homage there. That's like right in the middle of a tourist experience. Let's go to this USS Arizona <laughs> and pay homage right. to this thing. And it's just it is it's just kind of odd. And I think your book does a great job of like really questioning how those two things are intertwined. Uh, but let's start with that with that big argument, I guess, in your book um, about the relationship between tourism and military power. Uh, you know, this is kind of I guess the big ideas of the book, how are those two keywords intertwined? Uh, how do they jointly kind of empower U.S. interests, uh, both at home and uh, abroad? Well, I wanted, to, um, I wanted to kind of illustrate in the book how these two really seemingly um, mutually separate um, kinds of terms that they don't seem to fit, right? Um, how they actually are very much intertwined. And so I looked at, I look at these terms um, through um, the particularities of the Philippines and Hawaii for, 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 for the reasons of the book. Um, and that's why the book is titled, entitled Securing Paradise. So, um, so, so really the title is meant to reflect the ways in which I feel like we cannot think about one without the other mm -hmm. and the way that we're actually asked to do that, um, to think of them as separate as, as something that is, um, part of the way that they operate. Right. Um, so I look at, um, tourism through this term security, securing, um, this, this notion of securing. Um, but, um, I'm sorry, I look at, let me, let me redo that. I look at okay. militarism through this term securing, mm. um, and the ways in which securing is deployed in such, um, in such an almost benevolent and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a benevolent gift-like way, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's really about the safety and, um, security, your ability to be, um, a mobile subject, your expectations of, of not being attacked, your expectations of, of physical and other kinds of security. So it's really about um, how that happens and how that's affiliated automatically with military presence, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way that I'm kind of thinking about militarism and how that gets then um, connected to tourism, which is um, the, the second the second um, term in the title, which is paradise, and how paradise is also constantly shored up and produced by, by different kinds of discourses attached to tropics, attached to um, sand and sex and sun, um, but at the same time that it, it, it's absolutely not this natural space, right? It's absolutely constantly um, generated and produced by um, industry, by the state, by um, and in fact by the military, right? So, so these two are, are 
are, are, are two terms that cannot be thought apart. Um, so one of the ways I, I try to go about looking at them together in the same lens is looking historically. What, what, what are the ways in which they, um, in which they appear historically, particularly with reference to Hawaii and the Philippines, um, and in reference to those two sites' relationship to the United States. Um, as I look at people and how they how they start to kind of envision and encounter these sites, right? Um, and so maybe I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but in 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 the first chapter, that's the reason I look at the reporters, right? Mm. The, the folks who are writing about. Um, the folks who are writing about the Philippines and Hawaii and how, how they are encountering them. Um, they're actually enabled, they're brought to these bases through military transport ships, right? And so in their, um, in the way that they circulate and absorb a certain kind of vocabulary from the soldiers who are on those ships, they start to see these sites as potential, um, not just as, as paradises, but they start to kind of use this language of claiming, this language of marking sites for um, particularly fitting kinds of harbors, um, you know, starting to look at it as a particular kind of real estate that needs to be secured um, and that the people who are doing the securing are also on board with them on that boat, right? So mm-hmm. th- there's a cert- sort of way in which a lot of the ways of seeing and ways of knowing and sort of you know, the habits that come about, the colonial habits of, of looking at these spaces and looking at these people in particular ways become intertwined from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing that, uh, I mean, that's an amazing argument, I think. And one thing that, that gives it a lot more purpose is that it's not really just an argument about tourism and development, which is kind of the, <laughs> there's so many books and you know, articles produced about tourism and development, uh, and it's almost a relief to read a book that kind of just bypasses that narrative or, or you know, doesn't like says, yeah, this is true. But then there's a, what if we said tourism and anything else other than development? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And what if we see development as a kind of militaristic practice, you know, in a lot of ways? Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's. Uh, um, okay. In some ways, I mean, it is still I mean, it's still part of that conversation. Right. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the way that development gets. um particularly I think in the Philippines, particularly in the Philippines, um, the way that development gets carried out is through a martial law state, Mm. right? So um, it's inevitably tied in. Like development is is in some parts of the world absolutely militarized, right? Mm. You have to secure a place for development. You have to create this notion of stability and security. So um, inevitably I think it, it... it would be about development, but I didn't want to necessarily, like you said, it's other people have done that and have mm-hmm. done it um, well, so I didn't want to necessarily go into that too much. Right, and uh, I mean, development also has, I guess, tourism as development also has this like seemingly benevolent, uh, like ethical, you know, aura around it. Uh, you know, uh, it's kind of seen like as a way of like filtering money to poor people or something <laughs> to the colonies. Uh, you know, as a tourist, uh, I'm sure you know you always. You're always paying far more than the locals, but you don't mind <laughs> because tourism has yeah. this kind of ethical connection to it. And you're, you know, it's almost like you're giving out charity without meaning to, you know, this is, uh, but this, this narrative is also very upsetting, but it also has things to do with militarism and why, uh, I guess these tourist sites are so, uh, invested with this kind of ethical connection. And then, but then actually in practice, they kind of send out these feelings of militarism. 
what, what, yeah. did you, what did you find wrong or upsetting about the kind of narrative of tourism as this uh, ethical practice, this developmental practice? Oh, lots of things, right? Because on the ground, um, there's just a way that the state is so separate from the, the kind of material reality, right, mm -hmm. um, of, of how tourism plays out and how, um, in so many ways, it's 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 so hand to mouth, and yet it's it's that kind of economic um, strategy that's employed by the state. I mean, in Hawaii, it's close to a quarter of of um, the income, the state income, right, comes from tourism. In the Philippines, it's a lot less. They keep trying and they keep promoting the Philippines as, as you know, the the next third world paradise. <laughs> but um, it's really this kind of notion that um, it's it's a kind of practice that doesn't need a whole lot of infrastructure, mm -hmm. and um, we already have the the kind of resources that first world tourists want um, to 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 have. Um, you know, basically the beach, the sun, and um, the sand. Um, so it's all there, uh, and and all we have to do is provide service. So it's it's this kind of reduction of, of the third world again, right, to the playground of the first. Um, and it, it's it's the same kind of colonial discourse, um, and it's really familiar, right? But it doesn't get cast in the same way because it gets it gets basically um, framed as uh, as as development, this is your way out. This is your way of, of creating um, a, a quick exchange, a quick um, cash influx that you'll need to um, then mm -hmm. um, prop up your economy and, and invest in, into other kinds of more long term um, development. But it's really it's really not. It, it, mm -hmm. I know you don't see that happening on the ground at all. In fact, there's a lot of exploitation happening. There's a lot, you know, it kind of continues old patterns. It continues um, patterns of sexual exploitation um, around the military bases in the Philippines that aren't supposed to be there anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it continues patterns of what Haunani Kate Trask has called prostitution mm -hmm. in Hawaii, where you have um, um, folks basically having to perform um native culture, whether or not you're native Hawaiian, right? Mm -hmm. You could not, um, in order to, um, please the expectations, fulfill the expectations of tourists coming to Hawaii, mm -hmm. um, of a particular kind of native, right. Who, who is here and who, and who in, in, in a sense is secured, um, by the, by the United States being here. Right? Mm -hmm. so. It was interesting how you mentioned, uh, infrastructure and, how the, the, often there's it doesn't have this filtering down effect where uh, I mean just I guess you're in Hawaii so you probably know how terrible the traffic is and things like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it doesn't seem that bad when if you just if you just like stick to the very touristy areas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean same similar things in both you know I'm in China right now and so in China you can go to a place like Shanghai and feel like it's this actually this crazy developed space but then if you go anywhere except for the tourist areas it appears like. Like wow, this is the same place, you know. Yeah. Uh, and th so this connection between those two, as a kind of filtering down, does seem very um, suspect. But uh, one of the the uh, very interesting ideas I thought coming out of this uh, refusal, I guess, to just to accept th these notions of development, um, is that you turn to the notions of security. Mm -hmm. uh, and you talked a bit about this already, but um, one thing I found interesting about about security, the way you talk about it, um, is how gendered it is. 
mm-hmm. and it leads to a very gendered analysis of tourism and militarism. You, like you started with the, the uh, imagined GI Joe figure as both right, a soldier and a, this sunbathing male tourist uh, yeah. who, who becomes accommodated by a female brown woman, right? And then security then seems like provided by white males. Protected seems to be the feminized colonial territories that they're there for. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how these notions of of gender, sexuality, and race kind of play a part in forming these narratives? Yeah, I mean, I think the book is 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 um, I think is a definite practice in 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 feminist analysis in the mm-hmm. sense that it, I I. Just, it's, just, it's just kind of infused in the book. I don't, I don't feel like I necessarily um, have a part where I talk specifically about mm-hmm. um, gender. I talk specifically about race. I think it's just sort of woven in throughout, and that wasn't the intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about kind of understanding how both militarism and tourism operate with, with overlapping logics of gender and race, right? This notion of protection, this notion of mobility, right? Um, a militarized mobility, a touristic mobility, a lot of the ways in which we think about mobility and um, and the privilege of, of being mobile, the privilege of having access, of being able to literally um, penetrate into these territories, right? Um, it comes from a colonial notion of a very male, white male colonial notion of, 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 of privilege, right? Like that is just what you do. Um, and that is what you do as an explorer. And in some ways, these kinds of things are absolutely at the heart of militarism, right? <laughs> that sort of unquestioned ability and to, to preemptively enter a space and to dominate it, right? Um, and to be able to move around in it and to be able to secure your own ability to move around in it um, by virtue of arms. That's just part of what the military does. Um, and I think it's echoed in some ways and the expectations that tourists have when they enter into a place, right? Particularly first world tourists. Um, the ability to, especially coming from the third world, right? In terms of just passports, for instance. I mean, you know, um, certain tourists do not have to get visas to go to mm. the Philippines. Whereas <laughs> Filipinos, it doesn't work the other way around, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that ability, that kind of freedom of movement, right, um, is absolutely key. And it's it's not now. It, what I mean by that it's gendered male, it doesn't mean that women don't travel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that kind of mobility, that kind of expectation of mobility is absolutely masculine, masculine right? Um, so... So that's what I'm trying to get to by kind of thinking about them as these overlapping kinds of systems mm-hmm. that operate with with really kind of similar logics. Um, and when we think about how race plays into that, it's absolutely about the colonial space, right? So Hawaii and the Philippines are these places where um, the assumption is that the brown bodies stay there and they stay there as service to the sort of the roaming the roaming mobile subject um, and that, that kind of plays into um, who gets protected, who is infantilized as not being sort of the enlightened subject, enlightened mobile subject who, um, you know, sees more, who um, feels more, who is more of a subject than, than these little brown people. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, you know, uh, I, as Hawaiians or local Hawaiians as the kind of subjects uh, of tourism, there's... Uh, 
I'm from Las Vegas, and so in Las Vegas you get a lot of Hawaiians. Yes, right? you do. <laughs> Who then come become tourists uh, in my space, right? Yeah. And then it gets it, uh, these like. Does that seem to? Uh, I guess how would you incorporate that kind of notion into mm. into these ideas? Um, I would say that it's a it's a really complicated kind of story. That story of of indigenous folks moving elsewhere mm. into other spaces um, where also other indigenous people are and also other settler people are, right? Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that Hawaiians can't afford to live here anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, the, yeah. Kind of, the kind of jobs that are available for them in tourism are, do not pay enough mm -hmm. for them to, to live here um, in many ways. So, I mean, I think increasingly my fear is that Hawaii is not going to be a place for Hawaiians. It's not, it's not made itself out to be a place hospitable to its own people mm -hmm. um, because of the kind of economy, because of its occupation. And don't get me wrong. People are fighting this. Um, yeah. Absolutely. A lot of, of different groups on the ground um, who are activist groups in terms of, you know, finding ways in which we can get a living wage, um, you know, anti, occupation groups, um, mm. sovereignty groups, but there's really a way in which the, what you're seeing in Las Vegas has a lot to do with what is unavailable here for mm -hmm. native Hawaiians, right? Yeah. So, and you, but you, you get the similar kind of, uh, I guess, a pattern of, you know, let's hire the young people who are in high school and college, kind of tempt them with these crappy tourist jobs. Right. And it kind of gives them an excuse not to get into higher education or not to really take studies seriously because they have this immediate job and then later in life finding out how crappy the, the pay is and how dead end it can get. Yeah. Uh, you know, another kind of example, I guess, of <laughs> the seemingly yeah. benevolent development uh, gone awry. Um, yeah. You did mention that there's uh, a lot of your project seems uh, to focus on American tourists. Uh, and that a lot of what you're saying is especially kind of uh, relevant to American tourists or kind of first world tourists. Uh, do you think that all the, that this kind of a expectation of security is particularly for American tourists, or does, does it speaks to some yeah. kind of uh, insecurity in Americans? That's a great question. Um, I think that the the sort of bias towards thinking about the, the first world or American tourists in both these sites um, comes from my own limitations as, you know, somebody who doesn't speak Japanese or Korean, which are the sort of other, mm. or Chinese, right, who are the sort of other upcoming tourists um, in these places. Um, so I can only go by virtue of, uh, you know, sort of visual observation because I can't speak those languages. Um and I can only go by virtue of who I feel is getting targeted by certain kinds of discourses that are um, um, circulating or discourses that um, really kind of frame a particular kind of tour or tour experience. Um, so, for instance, um, Pearl Harbor, right? Um, that's really clearly targeted towards Americans or at least allied um, mm. experiences. But the interesting thing about Pearl Harbor is that more there, there's increasingly more Japanese tourists mm -hmm. coming to Hawaii. So it does kind of create this interesting um, uh, 
intersection that might not be deliberate. Mm -hmm. Um, and people have to kind of figure out what their space is in there. You know, I, I remember going into doing sort of a field visit at the new, um, USS Arizona Memorial. And as a result, I think of many kinds of attempts to think about the experience of Pearl Harbor, um, as not just a military experience and to think about more about it in a more multicultural way that kind of also thinks about, Hey, you know, it wasn't just Pearl Harbor that got attacked. It was Hawaii. <laughs> it was the people of Hawaii. Um, it wasn't just like this. Yes, it was a military um, kind of strategic um, kind of move, but there were people who are outside of the military who also got killed. And, you know, this is their life. And all of a sudden it's become this incredible a war zone. Mm. And so I, I think a big attempt of the new, the renovation to that space um, was, was to kind of address this issue of multiculturalism. So in the book, I talk a little bit about how multiculturalism, of course, gets um, absorbed by um, militaristic um, values in mm-hmm. this place, right? It gets redeployed in a different way. What was interesting that is that um, this there was this, uh, and remind me if I'm getting off track, um, there was this there was this exhibit um, that focused specifically on Japanese Hawaiians mm-hmm. um, and how they contributed to the war mm-hmm. and because the other part of the museum focused so much on Japanese, the Japanese military, mm-hmm. um, there was a way in which it got confusing for some people. And I could hear that <laughs> listening, you know, so there was this sort of merging of wait, but I thought the Japanese were the bad guys, but over here, they're the good guys. So what's <laughs> going on? You know, so like there were some young kids who were, who were very confused by that. Um, and I thought that, you know, the attempts for, there were some really kind of interesting, I think, attempts on the part of um, the, um, the the renovation to address this issue. And I think part of the way that they address the issue of um, increasing numbers of Japanese tourists coming to this mm-hmm. site, right, which in which the Japanese military is the bad guy, is to kind of push this notion that it was the military and not the civilians, mm-hmm. right, who were um, instrumental in this sort of Japanese imperial project um that the civilians themselves were sort of almost innocent bystanders which we know both is and isn't true right um they were absolutely recruited into the war effort um by the japanese state in in many ways um and so not all of them but there was you know there was they were part and parcel of you know making just like u.s uh, just like americans were recruited into the war effort mm-hmm. by um creating um, you know, making ships and other kinds of ordnance and arms and such. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this interesting <laughs> attempt to um, negotiate a changing um, clientele of tourists, right? Mm-hmm. Like who is coming here? Um, things are changing. The um, Pearl Harbor generation is slowly kind of um, basically they're passing away, passing away right? Yeah very, very few survivors left. Um, and so how can, how can, um, the same kind of narrative of world war two live on? How are, what are the ways in which we can kind of accommodate, like still tell this story. Um, and yet understand that this is a site, a tourist site that's the most visited tourist site in Hawaii. Mm. Um, and that a great number of these tourists are Japanese, right? <laughs> so, so very kind of interesting acrobatics mm-hmm. that you notice in there. And there's a great deal of confusion because when you try to start 
telling a more complex story, people get confused about who the bad guys, <laughs> good guys are. So it was really kind of one of those moments where I was like, wow. So I wonder what daddy's going to say to this little boy who doesn't know if this Japanese American, this Japanese Hawaiian soldier, you know, is a good guy mm. with scare quotes around that <laughs> or a bad guy. Right? So it, it was kind of, you know, you, you notice that there are increasingly more spaces in which alternative or wrong or, um, you know, possibly potentially liberatory translations of a space can happen. So that's kind of exciting. So let's uh, get into the historical backdrop to your book before we uh, forget it. <laughs> uh, but about, particularly about the Philippines and Hawaii, Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that these two sites are uh, unique from other colonial territories and that they're characterized by control and occupation, uh, desire to control land. Uh, can mm-hmm. you explain uh, why this is and how, why these two sites, I suppose, can be read in similar ways? Um, I think that statement came pr- primarily um, as a response to a question I had from somebody who said, well, why is this different? Why is touring these sites like like Pearl Harbor or Corregidor, different from um, touring something um, in Normandy, mm-hmm. right? D-Day is um, newly celebrated. Um, and uh, I said, because we didn't want to occupy Normandy, mm-hmm. right? We wanted to occupy. We viewed, um, the, and I say we, the United States viewed these two sites as, as, inevitably theirs, right? There was a sort of kind of assumption that these sites fell within the orbit of American control. It was really an extension of the Monroe Doctrine, right, to the Pacific. And it was just with that understanding that the United States would would become a global player by having these sites um, as as ways to kind of keep an eye on the Pacific. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with that sort of notion, not necessarily of looking at the rest of the Pacific as its territory, but looking at it as, um, as territory that it had a right to, um, to surveil, mm-hmm. to, to kind of keep an eye on and manage. Right. And so there's a very kind of interesting state privilege in that, right. It's a very imperial kind of, it's a very imperial kind of posture. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, before we get into the, the main chapters of your book, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about your archive, which yeah. is huge. It extends, it's from, <laughs> <laughs> it extends from what, the literary texts to yeah. guidebooks to photographs, films. And then I think some of the really interesting parts when you talk about freeways, highways, uh, military bases, and then tours, uh, helicopter tours and things like that, and then interviews. Uh, tell yeah. us how you... And I imagine this is like a, the, the most fun research ever, but <laughs> it was fun. Also a great pain in the butt, right? Because <laughs> it was just so massive. It just felt like it would never end. Um, I think the, the idea for the archive, well, I was initially, um, a lit scholar, mm-hmm. believe okay. it or not. So, uh, um, I was, you know, I started off grad school thinking I was going to do a, a book on a, a Asian and African American literature. Um, mm-hmm. because that was my first love. And, realized that I really wanted to do something different. Um, you know, this sort of the part of the graduate school, uh, journey. Um, 
but the idea for the, the archive came out of literature, right? Um, it was, it was Hanani Kitras's poems that had, that had, um, the, a sort of litany of, of different kinds of, um, aircraft in it, including helicopters. It was the, the scene that I discuss in, um, in about, um, Ninoch Karaska's novel, um, where she talks about the, the torture scene, right? That's powered by this generator. So it was really sort of what are the things that, um, that work, that operate, that function to, um, create these kinds of feelings, right? In, in her case, it's pain. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in, in the case of Hanani Trask, it's, it's love and it's admiration and nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the different kinds of, of things? So, I became more interested in things and I became more interested in events um, because that's where certain kinds of habits and, and certain kinds of feelings of affection or feelings of affiliation end up being generated. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I start to venture away from, from more familiar sort of textual um, kinds of material like novels and poems and um you know, journalistic accounts and, and brochures, uh, choice brochures to, um, to, to things like highways mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and tours themselves. So, so yeah, I, I decided to kind of look at them as a kind of text, um, but not limit them to just text because there are people involved, right? So how, how do we kind of negotiate a living, breathing, text, um, in some, in some cases, or this, this massive text that allows people to climb all, all over it or to drive over it and have a particular kind of experience. So, mm -hmm. um, it became more about, um, allowing for multiple, multiple ways that, um, tourism and militarism could essentially write or build or generate a kind of narrative, right? From these particular spaces. Yeah, and the uh, I mean to see these as texts is, isn't that far from, I guess, how one feels when they're given this like so pre-catered, you know, uh, script yeah. when one is on a tour, right? It, just, yeah. it seems like it's a text to it as you're when you're sitting there and like, oh, now we're here, and then even the jokes yeah. are just so, you know, uh, so scripted. They're stock, yeah, they're stock jokes. It's pretty amazing. Like you hear the same, like you, you go on these tours often enough. And start to hear this joke. Kind of like some of my lectures. <laughs> oh man, you went on the same tours over and over. Uh, <laughs> uh, was there anything that uh, surprised you uh, when you started to move your research from this kind of text to, uh, you know, like tours and highways, or uh, like something that kind of went against the argument that you were thinking of at the time? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to build that in a little bit because I try to pay attention to you know, the things that it was usually things that people said, mm. right. They would surprise me either because they would so closely, um, verify in, in an almost comical way, mm. you know, people would say, Oh, that's because, um, Filipinos are good at service or, you know, mm -hmm. they would just <laughs> say things that were so stereotypical that you, it would kind of blow your mind or it would be something really, really unexpected. Like, um, the, the interviews it would usually come out in interviews, right? Of people, um, because I think human beings are complex and 
we, we can think in contradictory fashion. Um, even if we're saying one thing or we have to say one thing because of a script of, of, um, of a tour or the, the expectations that you think you might have of what tourists are anticipating. Um, mm-hmm. you can also think opposite to that. Um, there are a, a few instances where, um, I had an interview with a native Hawaiian woman who was talking, who was one of the women who occupied the Valley that mm-hmm. the H3 was being built over. And, you know, she's there to basically protest this, this, um, military, a militarized road being built over the mm-hmm. sacred space. And she said, well, what's interesting is we would never have known that this valley existed if it weren't for the military wanting to build a road over it. So there was this kind of interesting kind of like, hey, you know, we because of, of, of um, U.S. imperialism in these islands, a lot of Native Hawaiians lost touch with, with their um, traditional practices. You know, that was part of what got educated out of them. Mm. Um, um, during the colonial era. And, um, and so a lot of these practices got lost. Um, and so it wasn't until this highway got built that, you know, folks found old Heiau and, um, other kinds of sacred, um, practices like a birthing rock, Mm. um, that would have just sort of maybe been lost to time. Mm -hmm. Um, because nobody went in that valley. Yeah. Supposedly it was haunted or something. Right. Well, that's part of the story too. Yeah. Um, so, so there are all these kinds of unexpected ways in which, you know, I would, I would say the military isn't always seen as this, this great evil, but Mm. there's, there's, you know, you understand that people are negotiating this massive presence on their Island in a, in a kind of constant way. And they're, they're having to kind of, um, Mm -hmm. maybe give credit where credit is due Mm. if they want to you know, if, if that's how you might want to say it, but, um, you know, they realize that there, there are all these kinds of interesting ways that, um, interesting intersections of interest that can happen. Um, so in the Philippines, that also, um, was clear when I interviewed a lot of the, the former, um, jungle trainers of the military who now operate as tour guides mm. of this jungle training school, um, and, you know, there's a great deal of nostalgia on their part for, for the U.S. military. and They want them to come back. And so that was surprising because mm. um, there was such a great outcry. Um, there's a really sort of surge of nationalism right around the early 90s in the Philippines. And, you know, people wanted the military out. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the, the dominant narrative that you hear about that time, about the Philippines and Filipinas and running the military out, you know, having sovereignty. And yet it's the indigenous folks who, mm. um, who were actually displaced by mm-hmm. the military and because the military basically took over their lands who were in some way wishing for them to return. So it was, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there are absolutely these kind of contradictory, um, moments that give you pause and make you think about, okay, why is that? Why is that love there? Why is mm. that, um, nostalgia there? And I think, it helps, right? Because it doesn't make it so straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. You kind also, of analysis that, that, that you want to offer. Yeah, and you also never really know where this performance begins and ends. I remember, yeah. you know, being on a tour and, you know, all those moments of, I guess, interview moments where you're in between doing one thing and another and then you start talking to the tour guides because there's nothing else to do. 
and they're kind of, they kind of act as this like authentic, you know, native or local. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. can ask them about food, but then they can like I was on a tour once and they started talking about American Empire and how Hawaii wasn't a state, blah blah, blah and, you know, and it was really interesting. I thought it was great, and then I noticed. Uh, at the end of the tour, everybody just started paying loads of money in tips. I think because, like the the tour guide had kind of guilted them so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, "Oh man, this is a pretty good strategy." Because <laughs> it totally yeah. worked. Out. I, I I didn't have any money to pay tips, but man, if I did, I could lose some so, guilt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that is funny. Um, I went. You know, like you also have to give credit for tour guides. They have mm. to kind of. They have to be able to gauge who their audience is. And mm-hmm. um, there, there's an absolute kind of difference between, um, you know, an audience that you would, you're, you're looking at and you're going, oh, I have to go with a standard script for this one or an audience that's going. Mm-hmm. I think this, these folks might be able to take the empire story. <laughs> so it can be interesting. And I don't know if it's sometimes deliberate who, who they just asked to be the tour guides for that day or, you know, so like it can't be an absolute kind of, sealed conclusion in, in many ways. It's just sort of like, you know, the, the methodology is not 100% because mm-hmm. you, you can't be there every day and you can't account for every variable, but it's sort of like what you see over a certain, um, a certain amount of time, a certain number of, you know, a certain number of tours to Corregidor, a certain, mm-hmm. you know, like I cannot ride so many helicopter tours <laughs> air six. So you kind of have to go with, with the, you know the the one or two helicopter tours in actual person, and then look look at the, the different ways in which helicopter tours are narrated online. You look at the um, the videos that they create and market, right? So you have to kind of find different ways of of doing the work that you want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, let's uh, before we start to run out of time, let's move to your first chapter, and you talked a little bit about a little bit about this. Um, but I like this chapter because I'm also a literature person. Uh, so this is about Nadochka Roska's uh, book. Uh, she's coming from the Philippines. And then you talk about Hanani K. Tras from Hawaii uh, to reconsider kind of notions of manifest destiny um, and how they are writing against this kind of genre of travel writing, travel brochures. Yeah. Um, and one of my most, I think one of your most interesting moments uh, in this chapter, uh, when you move from how uh, these authors not only contest the genre of travel writing, but then they really focus on the, the, the same kind of gender dynamics that you've been discussing, uh, seeing uh, uh, Hawaiian or Native Hawaiians as, you know, kind of prostitutes in the way that they're, uh, you know, paraded around and meant to perform this particular idea, which is something that I really it makes it really special compared to like where I grew up in Las Vegas, where mm-hmm. if, you're a, if you're a local, nobody just knows who you are. They're just shocked that you are a local. They can't imagine locals in the space. <laughs> right. But then, you, yeah, part of the going to Hawaii is then saying, oh, I talk to locals, you know, I, right. I engage with the, the, the folk there. And so can you tell us a bit about uh, this chapter and how it kind of reflects this, uh, a lot of the ideas in your book? Yeah. Well, actually, the, the reason I, I went with those two, with those two women, um, and there are a lot of different writers I could have focused on, mm-hmm. is I really appreciate the kind of, the kind of rage in the, in the way that they're yeah, <laughs> right? pissed off brown women, right. Um, writing against the kind of the, the grain, uh, of, of colonial writing, um, and the way that, 
the land and the people of the Philippines and Hawaii have been historically written about by colonial um, administrators, by soldiers, by different kinds of people coming to these places. Um, and so it was a way to kind of understand how they were trying to write against that, right? Um, um, and so somebody like um, Raska, you know, um, became successful in, in the late 80s and early 90s um, because of the way that she was writing. And I think there was a particular sort of openness in, in first world publication and publishing to um, what we could call exotic writing mm -hmm. um, at the time. And, but I wanted to also kind of explore her as going beyond that, as using that and using that expectation of writing about the third world in this particular way, in a problematic way, but then also kind of um, turning that on its head a bit, right? By instead offering um, a really kind of jagged paradise, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that kind of, the instead of having palm trees, you have corpses hanging from palm trees. Instead of having beaches, you have polluted beaches. Instead of um, an island that is um, just sort of naturally... Um, celebrating its um, traditional um, its traditional festival, you have folks going to that island and being really calculating about the way it could be marketed, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's really about um, pulling the rug out from from the kind of expected pleasures of that first world reader. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something wonderfully critical about that moment, right? Or People are going, uh, what? Wait. <laughs> um, right, and then the, the focus on the, the rape scene in it. I, mean, I think you begin the chapter with that, right? Between, yeah. was it in Colonel Amor? Yeah. Uh, the ironic title. And uh, yeah. I think Anna, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. the subject. And how this is so invested with like uh, critiques of US uh, politics. And then manufacture, right? They're, she's getting tortured by uh, a generator that says yeah. US on it. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really hard part to read. You know, the first time I read this book, uh, this rape scene, this torture and then rape scene. And it's just, but it's, it's so invested with this, like, uh, this, like you said, anger <laughs> and yeah. uh, critique at this. And then nobody really respecting the body afterwards and all this. Uh, yeah. So it was, I, I thought focusing on that and then comparing it to Trask's poetry, uh, really kind of brought home, I think how these two spaces are linked uh, especially along gender dynamics and uh, seeing how they, they're constantly brought into this protectorate but are also yeah. then made to perform certain images and identities for this. Right. Well, I think a lot of the ways in which tourism gets tied to militarism is around sort of the sex trade. Right. But I wanted to go be beyond that. Um, but at the same time, I found it super useful to look at, you know, not just metaphors, but actual realities, right, of, of thinking about U.S. relationships with the Philippines and Filipinos and Hawaii and Hawaiians um, under this notion of rape or prostitution, right, which is sort of the, the two kind of terms that I'm playing with in that chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that to kind of think about tourism and militarism, right, as a kind of rape or as a kind of prostitution that doesn't necessarily operate just through this really kind of illicit trade in flesh, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sort of like the easily identifiable example 
Um, oh yeah, so it's the sex trade, the R and R industry. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. No, but it happens in the most kind of legitimate ways, right? Um, and to kind of turn that then and to kind of say, how how can we look at the way these sites are prostituted? How can we look at the way these sites are um, basically creating moments of rapeability, right? Thinking about the Philippines and Hawaii as as sites that are occupiable, that are exploitable, that are bombable in some mm-hmm. in some instances. Um, so, has to do a lot with the kinds of things that I think Trask and um, and and um, Rosca are getting to in in their texts. So. So let's move to your second uh, chapter, uh, and this is partially about the argument I stated before about, uh, you know, like the Romans, you know, they brought roads, and therefore it's all cool. Yeah. Uh, but it's particularly about roads, right, this chapter. Um, and you talk about roads as they were created to connect military bases, but then uh, they're also, I guess, now connected to masculine and feminine types of infrastructure. Can you explain kind of the, the process of this and how these roads are uh, seen now? Yeah, um, well, the the roads that I talk about there are Kenan Road in in the Philippines, which was built to connect Manila or, you know, a part of not, it doesn't go from Manila, but it goes from the um, the bottom of the, of the mountains. But mm. um, it was built to connect the summer capital to, to Baguio, to Manila, um, mm. when it got too hot. And um, H3, which is basically built as a system of redundancy for the military, right? Because um, there are many roads that connect um, one, the leeward and windward part of the islands, but really this is about connecting. This is not about building a road that's necessarily useful useful for folks who live here to, to use um, and traverse. Um, it's really built to connect military bases. Um, so what I wanted to get to was... Um, really this notion of mobility, right? Um, to really kind of drive that, that point home by looking at the road and looking at the way that the road promoted particular ways of moving, of occupying space, of going into spaces, um, and the way of looking, looking at the land and the people, um, that, that are then sort of opened up to, to the space of the traveler, Mm -hmm. um, or the military, um, um, so that was what I was trying to get to in that chapter. And it was really about kind of understanding how these two, right, notions of, of, of being able to enjoy the summer capital in the Philippines and move, move away and um, move up and away from the, the cares of the city, the crowded cares of the city, were absolutely tied into also the policing of the, col- of the colony, right? Um, and, and that that kind of colonial um, mentality or the, that kind of colonial understanding of the road is something that I wanted to also then um, further explore because um, Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos, um, who, who's really, somebody has, has referred to him as, um, as a, a little brown brother or, or the, is, is some really derogatory term, right? Um, was was known as a great road builder in the mm-hmm. Philippines, and he was really um, that was you know I, I have a I have a comment in there because one of my one of my friends who's Filipino said yeah all the people here say at least he built good roads and it was really about that's the same exact kind of comment that people say about 
you know, if you critique um, U.S. empire in the mm-hmm. Philippines, they'll say, well, at least they built roads and built <laughs> hospitals and schools. You know, so it becomes this sort of notion of benevolent empire. You're all just doing it for the greater good. Um, when, in fact, it's really part also of a system of management and a system of um, policing dissidents and a system that allows you to, um, to, to have access to exploitable resources. Mm. Um, so it's all part of that kind of logic. It's not just this sort of benevolent kind of notion. So it was interesting to me to kind of explore this notion of the scenic highway and how that gets wrapped up in actually something much more violent and much more um, about regulation and control. Mm-hmm. And tourists could kind of say the same thing, like, yeah. yeah, we might have done some bad things in the Philippines, but at least we created these travel routes so that I can go, you know, so now I yes. can follow these and I can go to the same places, you know, and yeah. be with the same kind of woman or something like that. Oh, Lord, yeah. Uh, well, on that note, I guess we can move to the military bases <laughs> that you focus on. The two on. military bases. Yeah, we uh, can kind of talk about them together. Yeah, the, uh, so your next two chapters, yeah, focus on military bases, uh, both in the Philippines and Hawaii. Can you explain uh, what these places are like and uh, what you got from visiting these sites? Sure. These are probably the two most natural sites when you think about tourism and militarism. Right? Um, right. Um, as, as, you know, what are sites in which the two sort of Two, those two things converged, mm-hmm. and the, the first thing that came to mind was was really Pearl Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how it's the number one tourist site um, on on Oahu um, in in Hawaii, period. Mm-hmm. And it's an active military base at the same time, mm-hmm. right? So, um, how do the, those two things operate together? Um, and so, uh, and I basically found a sister site in the Philippines. It's not nearly as popular. Um, primarily because it's a paid site and it, it costs money, mm. um, more money than most um, Filipinos can afford. Um, but Corregidor, which is sort of an island, a former military installation, um, uh, an island sort of at the mouth of Manila Bay um, that was used to be under the Spanish military, but then got taken over by the United States and then now is um, sort of a memorial to World War II, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's the island is like that. So basically these two sites, I, I tie them together because they are memorials to World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about the way that World War II is frozen in both these places and how that narrative of, of in, in, in Pearl Harbor, the narrative of innocence and then um, sort of, persistence and dogged survival and then triumph really is this kind of, I mean, it's theatrical, it's dramatic, it's cinematic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has a particular kind of power, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it really fits into the story that the United States likes to tell about itself and likes to tell about the kind of military um, um, involvement that it has had in the world hasn't had since, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, when you think about Vietnam and currently the kind of wars we're involved with, it doesn't look anything like this. So there's a particular kind of attractiveness mm-hmm. to um, a really simplified narrative like this. You know, the underdog got attacked. There's a sense of innocence. There's a sense of triumph at the end. I mean, it's, you know, that's why so many movies are made. <laughs> right. um, and History Channel yeah. episodes and... Absolutely. You know, like, this is, like, why my dad is a World War II um, buff, right? Um, and when it comes to the um, 
Corregidor, it's a slightly different story because um, it's a different state, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the Philippines, um, and it's the, the development of Corregidor really happened with under over over um, a long period of time, and it was at first kind of developed as a way to to, to tie the, the the Philippines more closely to the United States, right? This notion that hey, we were we were brothers, we mm-hmm. collectively suffered. Um, this is our interracial camaraderie that can really be captured by these kinds of memorials. Um, and it's a story of liberation, right? So in the end, it's a story, um, there's this one site on one of the islands where at the very end of the tour, um, you see the Filipino flag go up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the story. And it's really about how the United States in World War II won back the islands only to generously give it back to mm-hmm. the Philippines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what just happened to the last 40, 50 years of colonial occupation? Right. It gets completely obliterated in that moment, right? So so these are the, the ways in which I think World War II gets differently um, deployed, but really for the same kind of, in, in the same kind of general interest, right, of, of telling a particular story about the United States as, mm-hmm. as ultimately triumphant, generous, giving in the Philippines and Hawaii as being the benefactors of that kind of gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your fifth, fifth and sixth chapters then kind of move from this more obvious, I guess, uh, tethering of tourism in the military to less obvious spaces, less obvious yeah. practices. Right? The first is in a helicopter, and then the second playing soldier in the jungle. Uh, can you tell us about these types of tourism uh, yeah. how they figure into your project? Absolutely. These were the last two chapters I wrote. Um, I felt like when I when I wrote them, I had just started my job here in Hawaii, and I felt like there was something that I needed to add to the book to really kind of kind of close it off. And um, there was something here when I was living here about constantly hearing helicopters overhead. Mm. I mean, Oahu has all these tours and it's not just tours, it's also the military because a big chunk of the Island is basically under military occupation. Um, and so it was really about kind of trying to think, what is it about the helicopter in Hawaii in particular? Right? Um, that's especially kind of resonating here. And, um, so I kind of stumbled into this, um, into this chapter and it was, it was with, with this realization that the, the Hawaii is helicopter Island essentially. Mm-hmm. It is the island made for helicopter touring. And, and as I looked more and more into it, it became clear that this was this was a tour that was very, very much um, really implicated in the history of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Vietnam, as we know, it, it, not everybody knows, actually. It was also known as the Helicopter War. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting to me to kind of trace the emergence of um, the helicopter tour in Hawaii with sort of the waning of the Vietnam War, because all of a sudden you have surplus equipment, surplus personnel who know how to fly helicopters, and a pacified paradise here in Hawaii that you could tour instead of, like, you know, people shooting you down in the jungles of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so I I started to kind of really think about what that meant and um, realize that perhaps it was really about retelling a story, a different kind of story about... um, how islands should be and how, um, how this, this helicopter technology could actually kind of produce a pacified Island. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was what went into that. That's actually probably my favorite chapter. in the whole book. Mm. 
Yeah, it does establish. Well, it was the most fun to ride, I guess, because you're on in a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, about four, forty-five minutes into it, Tori, you'll start reaching for the <laughs> for the, um, the special bag they give you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about your uh, the, the next chapter, the uh, uh, the Subic uh, Freeport's Jungle Tour that you talk about? Tell us what that's like. That is, um, so the tour for that basically is, um, do you want to know about the tour or the chapter? Um, yeah, both. <laughs> so, uh, sure. So I write about this, this tour that exists in Subic Bay, which is a former military, um, it's a Subic Freeport now. Mm-hmm. It used to be the Subic Bay Naval, um, Naval Base. And, um, this tour that exists there now basically offers, um, uh, sort of an eco tour survivor type kind of mm-hmm. experience, right? And it's just a demonstration. For the most part, most tourists take, take, uh, the, the one hour demonstration of, um, indigenous, um, skills. So the folks who live there are the, the Aita men who have, um, been, who were former military trainers, uh, for, for, for the U.S. military during the Vietnam War, essentially, they um, they were asked to to train American soldiers in jungle survival techniques, which basically they were practicing and developing as as indigenous people in the Philippines. Because you have to in order to survive, right? You have to know your forest, and you have you have to know how to find water and find food in the forest um, in order to in order to live as an indigenous person in the Philippines, because there's not much state support. Um, and so in, in during the Vietnam war, when it became clear that, uh, pilots were getting shot down and were not surviving, um, the U S military felt like it was a good idea to, to basically tap these men, mm. um, lived around the base or in the bases, um, to teach soldiers how to do that. Um, so they continued to do that. And basically, even after the, the, the war ended for, for, for the, officially at least for, for the U.S. military, they continued to do that until, um, the U.S. military left in mm-hmm. 1992, 1991, 1992. Um, and, uh, they, they then didn't have any jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, uh, the person who took over the management of the, of, of the bases, um, decided to parlay these men and this kind of skills that they had into an emerging kind of tourism, which is ecotourism at mm. the time. Right? And so it was a way for, for them to create, um, to have a living, to continue to have some kind of income and a way to really kind of tap into the nostalgia of the base. Because I mean, there's this, mm-hmm. there's a certain cachet to learning U.S. military skills that are also indigenous skills, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this perfect, a perfect storm, really, for 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 them. And so that I, I wanted to kind of take a look at that tour and see what was going on there, and what kind of what kind of things were were being taught, what kind of skills were being taught, what kind of messages about um, U.S. history because are embedded in those, you know, uh, and U.S. occupation are embedded in those tours. What kind of um, ways were um, indigenous men um, claiming that experience um, and kind of making use of it in ways that they need to in order to survive. So it was really kind of about exploring that that tour and kind of finding out mm-hmm. what, what was going on there. So, so uh, 
your conclusion then considers uh, militarism and tourism after 9-11 uh, and how many tourist sites uh, seem to be, uh, like, I, I guess they're kind of victimized by terrorists or they're seen as like this, these innocent victims to uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, and, and then that's creating more of a demand for a global security force. And I see this all the time uh, in my position right now in China where you know, the I'm sure. Chinese don't want to go to Malaysia now, of course, because of the Malaysian flight. Uh, you know, this happens all the time in the Philippines. That Hong Kong tourist bus, I think that was two years ago, like uh, got shot by both <laughs> both uh, so-called terrorists and then the police force. So there's all these places that are seen as like complete danger zones, and um, people get very paranoid, I suppose, or just very concerned about going to these spaces. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, and then being the the targets right of of the. Uh, of people who live there. How does this kind of figure in your in your analysis? Well, I was I was trying to kind of figure out what what happens, right? Like at the at the extreme of this kind of logic where the tourist has has greater power or has is is protected at a higher kind of priority than mm-hmm. the actual citizen of a place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and in in many of these instances, that's exactly what happens, right? Folks, um, local folks get pushed out um, of Waikiki, um, cleaning up and gentrifying. It's, it's essentially sort of like a global gentrification process, mm. but to accommodate sort of the tourist citizen. Um, and it's the soldier who, who is deployed in the interest of this sort of global idea of, of mobility, right, um, and access. Mm. So... That's what I wanted to kind of try to get to. And by noting um, those instances where it is the airport, it is the um, hotel, it is, you know, the resort that gets bombed, um, these are not random instances, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are absolutely deliberate kinds of targeting. And it's not just because, oh, that's where the people are. But that's where the people are who, um, if we bomb these places, that's going to get the inter- the that's going to get the attention of their governments, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of maybe I think a statement about how tourist citizens have become sort of the the newest, most cosmopolitan kind of citizen, right? The most, I mean, that's who that's who the global citizen is these days, and it's not the people who serve them, it's not the people who stay behind, it's not the people who get exploited by um, the tourist economy, and so. That's that's what I was trying to kind of explore a bit further um, in that conclusion. I don't think that I kind of cut it short because I was like, I'm running out of pages, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should probably end this book. But um, I try to continue that in in some of the other work I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to me. You know, you go to Thailand or you know Vietnam even, and you, tourists have their own police force. Yeah, uh, and you know, I at first assumed, okay, this is because tourists are exploitative. You know. They want drugs. They want sex work, and no, it's not for that. It's for protecting the tourists when they do those yeah. things, you know, when yeah. they break the law. <laughs> exactly. So it's really kind of this interesting new kind of subject that mm. that emerges, right, as this new global cosmopolitan tourist citizen. Yeah, and then are not subject to the same laws. Mm. You know, the, yeah. they party in Las. Yeah, this is especially true in Las Vegas, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure you see it all the time. Uh, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to uh, really thank you for taking extra time. I know you have somewhere to be soon, uh, but can you uh, tell us about any new work you're, uh, any new research yeah. you're working on now? 
Yeah, I am. Uh, I'd love to. Um, I'm, you, you know, this today I was just start starting, uh, an essay on this, but, um, I'm trying to put together a book about, you know, going back to MacArthur, um, about a woman who, um, was a mixed race, uh, Filipina mm-hmm. who, who at one point in her life, um, and this is how I came across her was because she was at one point in her life, MacArthur's mistress, mm-hmm. right? So she was this vaudeville actress who, um, was mixed race Filipina in the Philippines. And she met MacArthur when she was, um, in her late teens and he was in his late forties and then he brought her to DC. So that's just one aspect of her life that I'm trying to explore. So it's really about her. It's not so much about MacArthur. I just kind of tripped over her because I was looking at MacArthur. Um, so it's really cool. a, a, a whole anthology is about this or just your, your art? No, oh, okay. it's, it's a book. It's not an anthology. So it's, um, um, so it's really about a biography of intimacy okay. of, of, of how empire operates through intimate relations. And, um, you know, it follows, it, it kind of explores a different kind of aspect of, of, of empire that I don't get to. So it's a little bit moving away from militarism and tourism, um, in a way. So this is sort of like the project I had to put on hold so I can finish this book. But, um, I feel like her story is so interesting because mm-hmm. it's really about the different circuits that open up to her as a colonial subject. Um, the way that, um, sexuality and gender and race operate across different spaces of empire, um, from the early part of the century to about to 1960 when she, um, she dies in, in Hollywood. So, um, it's really kind of a kind of understanding who she is and how she operates, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of using that to tell a broader um, story of, of, of us Philippine relations. Um, and I'm also hoping to get another project started on specifically on genealogies of hospitality, um, um, which is more related to the first book really. Um, um, so looking at genealogies of his hospitality in the Pacific, particularly, and trying to kind of understand how, um, how hospitality as a kind of practice, right. A, a kind of traditional indigenous practice mm-hmm. gets hijacked mm-hmm. <laughs> um, by tourism and by, by the project of empire, right. Basically empire is built on an assumption that you are hospitable to it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, you know, discourses of empire operate, um, to, to create, um, hospitality, to recreate hospitality and redefine hospitality as, as this kind of welcoming, this invitation for empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And this keeps me thinking about growing up in Las Vegas too, where, you know, at my old university, everyone said, this is the best university for hospitality, you know, for mm-hmm. studying like, as if it was a kind yeah, of a weird coincidence. Like, <laughs> yeah. So like, what is that all about? Um, yeah. and then, so, uh, this is probably going to be more of an edited collection that I'm going to work mm. with, with, with a friend. Um, so it's probably going to, um, it's going to ask for people to kind of meditate on contemporary and historical practices of Pacific hospitality mm. that, kind of, that lie outside of that. Right. So that we can think about what are, what is the future of hospitality in the Pacific? Right. Mm. It's really kind of about re kind of understanding hospitality as, as, as an exchange, there is no such thing as absolute hospitality. It's always conditional. Mm-hmm. So how did it become absolute? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. how did it become unconditional hospitality? 
Um, and how can we make it contingent once more? Because I think that contingency helps to kind of um, address notions of power, helps mm-hmm. to address um, necessary exchanges that need to happen for, for a kind of just hospitality to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the only uh, one, once a, I guess, observation I want to make, uh, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, man, I really want her to walk into an ABC store and just <laughs> read the ABC store because it's, it's just such an interesting place. And I go to the ABC stores all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> I, I, mean, to, yeah. um, I usually just go grab something cold <laughs> to drink and get out of there as fast as I can. But yeah, it's such I'd love to see how you would read an ABC store. <laughs> yeah. And they're not so, like, uh, they're, I guess that they're Hawaiian, they're not, they're not tied to like traditional culture or food or anything. It's so interesting. And then they, there, there's a lot of ABC stores in Las Vegas too. Oh, there are. Yeah. though they're huge in Las Vegas uh, and not really frequented by Hawaiians either. Like they're on the strip, you know, it's, it's strange. <laughs> it's that would be an interesting project actually, but yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if I have if I stop doing literature, <laughs> I'll there you, go. you can always read a store. Right. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you again for taking extra time with us. I think it was worth it going so far in depth into your book. Uh, yeah, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this this opportunity. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Bernadette Vicuna Gonzalez on her book, Securing Paradise. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me anytime on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.